Okay, we got Radar over there asleep and settled for now. We got our sweet tea scented candle. Got the got Studio G here in the in the vibe. You feeling good? Feeling good? I feel all right. I'm tired. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's just old. If uh, you know, I just get tired quick working out in the yard, and I was out there all day today. I'm just tired. But you're you're good for working out in the yard because I've been you know <laughs> you're not my, doing that. See my farmer tan. <laughs> You like oh, yeah, that? you do kind of have one going on. <laughs> All right, anyway, so for this week's Downbeat, Scott, we're going to listen to about a minute of an excerpt from what I think is a movie. I'm looking here on YouTube. I'll have it linked. It's called Trick Baby uh, from 1974. This, is, this, this scene is really relevant to one of the things that's discussed in the interview today. So I just wanted to explore this. Let's take a listen. Uh, it's you liberals who have lifted them up, Howard. Paul. You conservatives make a mistake. You can't afford to strangle hope in people. Without hope, people become dangerous. No, Howard, you liberals have let them invade our society. You give them jobs, political jobs. Oh, you missed the point. It's only the smart ones we move up. <laughs> that makes it even worse. No, you know, we have to move them up. If we leave a smart one in the ghetto, he might develop into a leader against us. But if we raise him up into white society, we neutralize him. He feels compelled to try to act like us. He loses his identity and uh, his racial anger, if he has it. Racial anger. He becomes <laughs> alien to his brothers. They realize he's sold them out and they grow to hate him. He becomes worthless to them and safe for us. Uh, no, thank you. In fact, in his love for the creature comforts, except for his color, He's become one of us. They're not talking about me. They're mm. definitely not talking about me. Maybe they're talking about the people who like Satie well, playing in the background. Right, yeah, nice gymnopedi mm -hmm. in the background there. What do you think about the the spirit of what's being said, that uh, the allegation here, sitting around this dinner table with these people in power in this movie, that the only people, and, and presumably, you know, based on the setting, the only black people that rise to any sort of influence are the ones that they can check, the ones mm -hmm. that they choose, the mm -hmm. ones, you know, that aren't going to get the masses riled up against them. This movie's called Trick Baby? Trick Baby. It came out when? It says 1974. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, from the haircuts, that makes sense. Sure. I didn't know there was um, color movies like that back then. No shade. No shade. All right. So uh, <laughs> you need to have a rim shot there on your little computer. I Thank you. I do remember in graduate school reading studies in the way that media, in the role that media plays in that very thing that he's talking about. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we talk about uh, the folks like Candace Owens sure, a lot, or sure. Stacey Dash, yeah. you know, and and they have their spots in conservative media, you know. So it was like studies of, of you you put a person that's normally not associated with a group as the representation to say, see, we we include everybody. We're right. we're not racist. We have a we have a black person. <laughs> so. Um, yeah, I, I remember reading studies about that very thing. It's interesting that that made it out in a movie and I wasn't aware. It's one thing to talk about that as far as uh, fiction. We know, as, as you've said, it happens in absolute real life. Mm -hmm. Would you ever consider Triloquy one of... No, know, no. Period. <laughs> Let's go ahead and get started.
Garrett McQueen. I'm Scott Blankenship. And this is Triloquy. I really love how it kind of rattles the the headphones, like that guitar. <laughs> I, I really love what you composed there. Again, shout out to you. I, I, I used I used the talk box pedal that you got me for my birthday. Yep. I figured you, you would want to hear that in action. And if you think it rattles in the headphones listening to it there, you should hear it when it's actually being played on the guitar in real <laughs> With time. The amp and all of mm-hmm. that. <laughs> It'll rattle your feelings out. Welcome everyone to Opus 104 of the Triloquy Podcast. I want to send a special shout out to all of the new listeners. I've actually gotten uh, several emails over this last week of folks who are uh, joining us for the first time. Shout out to Rachel Barton Pine for bringing in all sorts of uh, new audience members. So uh, welcome uh, all the new folks and thank you for being here. This is a podcast that takes that phrase, classical music, and challenges the notions surrounding it, the conversation that should be surrounding classical music, so-called classical music, even some of the actual music itself. So Mm -hmm. again, thank you for being here. And uh, of course, shout out to all of the returning listeners. Thank you for your continued support. Uh, Before we get started here into the first movement, I want to give a few shout outs. First and foremost, shout out to the Schubert Club. Uh, About the time you're listening this, uh, yesterday on Tuesday, uh, my uh, Music Museum Mini uh, went out where I sort of talk about the bassoon as a sort of uh, kids interactive thing to get them down to the Schubert Club Museum Mm -hmm. in downtown St. Paul. Shout out to the Schubert Club. They have been one of the institutions that has, you know, really stuck with me, giving me work, giving support to Triloquy. So huge shout out to everyone over there at the Schubert Club. Thank you so much. I want to give a shout out to Make Music NOLA down in New Orleans. I gave a Beyonce lecture down there last week (laughs) and the kids loved it. There are, Scott, there are children who do not know Destiny's Child. So there is a lot of learning to be done. I wish I could reach some of those buttons you got <laughs> there, after there that. Is, there is work to be done. So shout out <laughs> to everyone down at Make Music NOLA. Um, to the Minnesota Music Teachers Association, thank you. I was honored to give their uh, keynote for their conference last week. I, I uh, talked about some uh, Dvorak, those Negro melodies that he affirmed. I go into, uh, remember when, I, uh, when we had that baby on here rapping? Yeah, I showed yeah. them that, and we had a like a breakdown discussion. So a huge shout out to all of y'all. Adrian Dunn, member of the Triloquy family, um, recently uh, had a debut with the Chicago Philharmonic, and the digital stream of that is uh, coming out. Uh, so huge congratulations to the Rise Orchestra and Adrian Dunn. I'll have that link in the description. Uh, today's guest is the one and only Babatunde Akinbaboye. We have a really incredible conversation about um, you know living on the motherland, on the African continent, and the United States as a musician, and and sort of what that means, Mm. the issue that we started uh, this opus with, you know, folks who rise to the top and supporting, you know, folks left behind and and all that sort of thing, and, you know, all all sorts of stuff. So huge shout out to Baba Tunde. Looking forward to uh, sharing that with y'all in the uh, third movement of this. Uh, Just a couple more things I want to say thank you to the Minnesota Orchestra for giving a shout out to my show, The Sound of 13 on Juneteenth. I really appreciate that. As much shit as we talk, I'm sorry, as much shit as I talk, I'll take responsibility (laughs) on the Minnesota Orchestra sometimes. 
um, you know, they 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 recognize uh, something good that's happening. So I, I really appreciate uh, everybody over there at the Minnesota Orchestra. And I want to um, just to round out these announcements, say hello and thank you to Sister Florence, who we've uh, shouted out here before. Hello, Sister Florence sent me a Juneteenth card that I needed to read, and I wanted I want to read it here before we get started. It says, our ancestors gave their lives so that we could live our dreams. And now, in honor of all they worked for then and all we are today, we give thanks. We rejoice. We dance and shout and pull together. And we remember all of our ancestors suffered. We are standing on a legacy so rich in power and beauty that nothing can stop it or us from shining. I think about all of the hardships that I've been going through. You know, Scott, you have your own um, things going on in your life. And, you know, even though Juneteenth not talking about you, <laughs> I think it, it still goes, you know, it can go broader to uh, really, you know, refer to everyone's struggle. There's so mm. much that went into our existence, first and foremost. And there is so much that we have put in to be where we are as individuals. And, you know, no matter the hardships, no matter, you know, who has silenced us, who has fired us from a job, who has broken up with us, whatever hardships we've had in our lives, we are still here. And I think there's something to that. We cannot be stopped. That's what the card said. I did not say that. That's what Sister Florence said, and I agree. Right, right. <laughs> no, I used, to, I used to carry something around like that and share it on my birthday, and it started out with, uh, congratulations, uh, despite our best efforts, you have made it another year. <laughs> so, congratulations. Yes. All right, well, let's go ahead and uh, get into this first movement. Scott, I'm going to go ahead and let you um, have the first accidental here. You already have it pulled up. Talk to me. Right. You know how I like to try to bring in some positive things. Yeah. Uh, and so I was I was looking for something that I was really excited about sharing. San Francisco Classical Voice uh, says that their Emerging Black Composers Project has named its first winner. Now so you said gets, So this gets a sharp. This is a sharp from me. Now... You the the gentleman that won. You said that you know Trevor Weston. I was thinking. I was thinking about somebody else. Shout out. To, I, I was mistaken oh, okay. in our earlier conversation. But shout out to Trevor Weston. I, I do hope to meet uh, Mr. Weston. Here. So let me give you an excerpt here. It said after sifting through more than one hundred applications, the San Francisco Conservatory of Music has announced the first winner of its annual. Well. If it's how about the inaugural sure. winner of the Emerging Black Composers Project, Trevor Weston, fifteen thousand uh, dollars. That's the commissioning fee for an orchestral work to be performed by the San Francisco Symphony coming up next season. Hmm. Yeah, so um, I hope that this does become an annual thing that we can say, you know, the second annual and third and all that sort of. Uh, jazz. Um, but the award was created as part of a response to calls for diversity in the wake of protests over the death of George Floyd. It's part of a broader set of initiatives overseen by the Advisory Council. Hmm. So it sounds to me like they are putting the horsepower behind this to make it go past one year, you know, more than a flash yeah. in the pan. Uh, I guess what I'm saying is um, it, it doesn't, to me, this doesn't look performative. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, one of the one of the things I'm thinking about right now is getting this music performed by an orchestra is is big. I want 
all the time to be in the conversation uh, recording this music. Mm-hmm, we, mm-hmm. You know, the, the performance of it is great. I think we really need to get to, you know, uh, making sure that this music is enshrined in that way. What sorts of things, uh, when it comes to recorded music, we're talking about new composers, again, shout out to Trevor Weston. When it comes to spicing up or, or, or making a statement or whatever on your playlists, what are some of the aesthetics that uh, you're, you're looking for? What are, your hope, what are you hoping to see out of uh, folks like Trevor Weston and these other composers who are, or, or who are being given these really important platforms, these really big platforms? You mean what, what would I put on the air? Well, as far as just general sounds, like are you are you feeling that you want to offer your listeners more um, smooth, relaxing things, maybe distressed things? Are you wanting more action and uh, fortes and allegros in your life? What 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 sort of if, if you were you know deciding you know mm-hmm. what what sorts of sounds? If you were trying to uh, commission something even for Mister Weston, what sorts of what what things are you looking for these days? I don't see any reason why it all can't be there. Mm-hmm. Um, I really like uh, some of the things that Devonte Hines is doing mm-hmm. because it speaks to some of the minimal, minimalist composers. Okay. You know that some of the pieces that he's done, yeah. but it seems like an upgrade. You know, like uh, like today's minimalism yeah. if that if that makes sense yeah um i really like um you know Dobrinka tabakova uh has a new piece that's coming out but if you want to go back to her cello concerto there's all of that there's some crunchy bits it starts off a little bit head bangy yeah and then in the middle it's all romantic and and bleeding hard and all that sort of thing um i would love to hear um more of the um I don't know what this, I don't want to say impressionist, but, and I don't want to say new age either, (laughs) but spatial music, something that um, is, and Katie and Delaney over at Classically Black are going to cringe, you know, um, I, I like those concerto for chair sort of compositions <laughs> the very new music yeah yeah we got we got to encourage these composers and make sure that they have the space to really be able to express themselves in the right. way they want to and it sounds like you know what this uh what the san francisco uh conservatory and all those folks are doing he uh trevor weston is going to have that freedom so it's, uh, it's exciting I, yeah i would love to hear the incorporation of you know the uh, the studio techniques as well. Uh, Zoe Keating and the way she uses delay pedals and distortion pedals with her cello. I think that creates some really interesting sound. Uh, Devon Russell Gray uses the push pad for Ableton in his compositions for, for drone and, and um, background noise uh, to go into a track. I, I, I think when it's used well, that it's very powerful. It's really yeah. effective. Yeah. All right, well, well, that's good. A nice quick I, little sharp here. To I get think I gave started. you a little bit more than you were after for that. But <laughs> Okay, well, again, shout out to uh, Trevor Weston. I'll have a link uh, to this story and uh, links to all of Trevor Weston's work in the description of this to move us to our next little quick accidental. Uh, let's hear, Scott, a piece of his called Ashes. It looks like it's a, a, a work for a choral ensemble, a tune that's new to me. So here's a little bit of this music of Trevor Weston. See that's that's kind of what I'm talking about. It's spatial. It's 
Yeah. It, it, it's got room for you to think, I guess. Um, I don't know quite how to ex- explain it, but to me, that sounds more interesting than, you know, just uh, a choral ensemble singing a cantata. I have to say that I wasn't really huge on choral music. Uh, it's got to be a When I moved here, like yeah. I, I think Minnesota in in particular really stands the the choirs of the choral music. So um, it's it's cool for me to begin to learn more of the different colors of choral music. What know? was the group we heard at the Sphinx Conference in 2019? Oh, that was a uh, Vocal Essence. Shout out to Vocal Essence. And the the way that they use their voices, it seemed produced, didn't it? It seemed. What do you mean? Like it seemed too good. It, it couldn't no, be it live. seemed. You know, no, like they were they were doing things with their voice that sounded like a digital technique. You know, yeah. it sounded it sounded like something that was done on the back end rather than on the front end. And see, and what's 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 really interesting. I'm trying not to use the word crazy. You know, just out of context. But just what blows my mind is that we compared those sounds to something digital when those sounds have existed for eons. We just haven't mm-hmm. given them space in these so-called classical music, in these choral, whatever, in, in these spaces. So we can't help but to compare it to that because, sure, you know, it, but I, I don't know. I think, I think that's an interesting point. I, I think that speaks to something. I'd like, know? yeah, the, the voice and, and more electrics. I'd, yeah. like to, I'd like to hear what people can create with a string or a wind group and a digital audio workstation. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, you started with um, something on the, on the positive tip. I have a little... A quick positive thing here. I want to give a sharp to Juneteenth. Now, I'm, let me say this. Yes, I was one of the many people to share the Malcolm X quote, talking about the white man will give us symfo- uh, symphonic, symbolic <laughs> gestures. You know, instead symbolic of symphonic gestures, instead of instead of the real reparations, instead of the the real equity. I, I stand in that. I think it was so easy for Biden and uh, Vice President Harris to sign this legislation and and call a celebration. I I openly critique the idea that that is actual motion i think it's very significant you know what we were talking before we cut on the mics i was uh very moved to see juneteenth being discussed on cartoon network you mm-hmm. know when i'm when i'm looking at that a generation of kids who you know know that now that that right. you know that that wouldn't have otherwise so anyway all of all of that to say we need to do more this isn't you know this isn't actual reparations this isn't actual equity and it's good to see some energy around it. Obviously, hanging out with me, you've been familiar with Juneteenth, you know, for for a while, and even before, I'm sure. But what do you think about well, that? That and Kwanzaa too. Sure. What do you think about the new um, attention being, you know, uh, put on Juneteenth? I went to bars, and there were, you know, servers in Juneteenth T-shirts and things. That that's I don't know. That's relatively new to me. Yeah, I haven't seen that. I purposefully didn't post anything. About Juneteenth? Yeah. Why not? Because uh, I was not sure how it would be taken. Um, hmm. I, I didn't want to look like I was doing something performatively, that I was doing something as, you know, putting up my black square. Yeah. <laughs> right. you, you chose not to perform, and, and I think that's perfect. And I, I didn't put up the black square either. But, you know, we have this platform. Yeah. Though, to to do those sorts of things and what I've got you know three hundred followers so <laughs> well I don't I don't need to uh, read this Juneteenth article or nothing y'all know what Juneteenth is um, look it up if you don't what I wanted to ask you though Scott oh so with no this, <laughs> that wasn't it <laughs> so with this being a now a federal holiday 
there are a lot of folks who are going to be off work, get a paid day off of Juneteenth for Juneteenth. But you have to have a certain type of job to benefit from that. And I feel like disproportionately, the folks who do not have those jobs are black people. That's one of the things shout, I thought about. Shout yeah. out to Dell. He got a paid day off last week and I was working. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting here in front of my laptop and producing and doing X, Y, and Z. And so. you're your own boss. Why didn't you give yourself the day off, man? Well, that guy's a jerk. Well, I gave myself, this, a lot of people got Friday off. <laughs> um, right, like right, I, right. Of course, I you know, did my thing on Saturday. Right, right. I, I, I don't know. What, 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 are you, what, what are you gonna do with your, uh, <laughs> your, your, your extra day off every year now for your, for your Juneteenth? Are you gonna? <laughs> I, I can't even predict. <laughs> I can't even predict. You need you need to go find a person of color at the very least who has a business to you know give some money to or. Oh, there's oh you're talking about that. Okay, um, there's a joint. Oh, what did you think I was talking about? <laughs> I, I thought go I, work for a black right, man for right. a day. Right, I didn't yes. know what I didn't know what you were expecting. <laughs> no, I actually have a new favorite little cafe. It's called Caribou. It's over near my house. It's spelled K A R I B U. Oh, it's not and like the Caribou Coffee. Then. No, oh, okay. no, it's a it's a halal deli and they've got a little grill back there and they do some amazing they've got some amazing food and yep. it's really inexpensive so shout out to caribou if you're in the if you're in saint paul stop by the guys are friendly um black owned and operated yep well what is next i mean we have the holiday now Last week we talked a little bit about defining Let's, reparations, you know. So okay, so we so we have the holiday. What do you think would be the next step if if you were, you know, and, and maybe I don't know. It's, it's sometimes it's hard to think about on the federal level and and all that sort of thing. Pass the Voting Rights Act. Yeah, that should, the George, have, that should have happened already. Pass right? the George Floyd uh, Police Reform Act. I mean, pass the Anti Lynching uh, th Act. This doesn't mean anything, right? Juneteenth means nothing if you're going to turn. It's like Valentine's Day when you treat your partner like shit the rest of the year, but you buy him a couple flowers and take him to a nice dinner. And I'm going to tell you my other to thing. Absolve. I know you. I know you've been through Target and and see <laughs> all of the pride wear right, and everything right, that right. you know, which is is new for me even in in my thirty something years. The, Somebody looks. So they go, this they is go a buy way the to Target dashikis. I, I can't. <laughs> oh, I can't. Oh, <laughs> oh, you have to use that for the for the picture, like uh, the Target <laughs> symbol with all the African colors. I mean, don't don't buy the. Don't, look, uh, where, where's my button here? Don't buy the. I'm gonna stop the presses if I see one of y'all in a Target dashiki. Would you wear a dashiki as a white man? Would you Would you leave the house? I would get. <laughs> Torn apart. <laughs> At least the fez. I think you would look cool, and you know that's that's a nice ally hat. <laughs> I, I think I could. Rock, I think I could actually rock a fez. The fez would work. So this is the, my overall point to this, though, was how can you give a candy bar to somebody who's had no meal? Uh, so the 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 day off and the recognition of it is fine, but it doesn't mean anything if you're not going to change. Everything that all of these people are working against, you know, to try to get some fairness and equity. Yeah. I mean, and again, just to repeat myself here, even the symbolic gesture of a federal holiday and a day off doesn't impact, you know, it, it doesn't positively impact black people in a proportionate way. There has to be a way for all of the blacks to be off. But see, but that's the problem. As soon as all of the black people are off of work, 
Society is done. <laughs> yeah, but also think about the number of people. You've got to be pretty racist to not take a day off work. <laughs> what, wait, what, wait, how did we get here? Be racist. Hold on, help me. I lost you for a second. Be racist to well, not if take I, a day Well, if off. I am a white person mm-hmm. that refuses to oh, acknowledge Juneteenth, <laughs> that is some hardcore anti-black sentiment. And well, Unless the person is like, no, this is Juneteenth, and I know that the government is gonna give re- isn't going to give reparation to these people, so I'm going to do my individual task to fight the good fight on this day while everyone else is off. I don't know. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that there's folks like that, too. You know, yep. to, I mean, volunteering, whatever, but at the very, very, very least, giving money to black businesses, you know, buying something or even, or even donating to, yeah. to black cause. I see what I, I, I wasn't exactly sure what direction you're going, but yeah, yeah. The, that's the least you can do yeah. is find some black owned business. Well, if I they're have, open on Juneteenth, would yeah. they be open? Yeah. Federal that's, holiday. Yeah. That's a, that's well, I mean, the restaurants are going, look, every are, is, are the taco shops closed on Cinco de Mayo? You know, not to make comparisons here, but you know, I we, thought we, Cinco de Mayo was like an American thing though, isn't it? Okay. And there are American Mexican restaurants, aren't they? Who make a lot of money on Cinco de Mayo. I'm just saying that the black restaurants are there. I, I mean, I, I went to some black restaurants on uh, Saturday. Right. I ate for free at one of them. Shout out to the, uh, oh shoot. Uh, it's a, it's a new restaurant over in the, uh, Rondo area. I think it's called the, the Rondo street cafe. Mm. If that's not right, I'll, I'll come back next week. We can uh, correct myself, but that's all right. Um, went, went to went to a couple uh, little festivals here in the Twin Cities. Um, Emil from the Minnesota Orchestra. Shout out to Emil, one of our new homegirls here in the Twin Cities. Uh, she was in uh, the park and presented some music by uh, Jesse Montgomery. There's some Florence Price, I believe, and she closed out with a William Grant Still, a movement from his uh, Suite for Violin and Piano. Which it was kind of cool to you know hear that music live and in that sort of very black context and you know uh, you know more than just a piece of music we press play on, but you know actually. Mm-hmm. Seeing a performance, maybe mm-hmm. hmm, maybe that was my first post-COVID live performance. I, I think technically that is. So, nice. shout out, shout out to um, Emil. Anyway, so I revisited for a little bit uh, the suite for piano and violin by William Grant Still, and I kind of uh, fell in love over again, once again, with the first movement. It's subtitled African Dancer. So we will listen to a little bit of this as performed by Randall Gooseby to get us into the next accidental. Wong on piano. Randall Gooseby. Randall is from Memphis originally, so mm. shout out to uh, a fellow Memphian there. A few Sphinxes ago, so before we went, uh, Randall Gooseby was in the finals for the uh, Sphinx competition. So, of course, he was the crowd favorite. You know, sure. could, could, do you remember how you we, we even get to vote for a crowd sure. favorite? So he was the crowd favorite. Everyone wanted him to win, and 
as as it happens, oftentimes the crowd favorite is not the person who actually wins. So right. You, so we you, saw that happen. So you know we had an attitude, but Randall, <laughs> <laughs> but, but Randall is doing some good things. He signed a deal with one of these classical record labels, and uh, I'm I'm blanking right now. But one one of the one of the main ones that you know that the y'all use at your job and 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 everywhere anyway. So we're we're going to be hearing more of him. I'm sure you're going to be seeing uh, more of his recordings come up in your playlists, and you know folks cool. who listen to classical radio and all of that. So huge shout out to um, Randall Gooseby, and thanks for that performance of African Dancer. All right, I, um, this is a because this is a podcast. I often think it's important to make sure that we're covering. Uh, podcast news and we're going to do a little bit of that today I'm going to give this article um, from uh, Variety.com a sharp here so uh, folks who've been with us for a while may remember us talking about a podcast called Call Her Daddy it was a uh, it's described as a sex positive podcast that launched on a platform called Barstool All right, long story short I'll I'll, uh, catch people up there was um there were two hosts, um, a woman named Alex and a woman named Sophia. They started this podcast. Alex was doing a little bit more work on the production and pre-production and all that side of things and was getting paid a little bit more from Barstool. That caused some friction between Alex and Sophia. Sophia left. Alex ran the podcast by herself for about a, uh, about a year and earned herself a three-year, $60 million contract with Spotify, I mean that that deserves a little applause if I say so. Can we can we clarify something real quick? Sure. <laughs> sixty million dollars. That's an air horn. <laughs> Go ahead. What what do you need clarify? S- is that sixty million dollars for three years? Sixty or million s- for three years. Or sixty million dollars a year. Sixty million for three years. So twenty million dollars a year, if you want to think about it that way. So does that? S- so wait a minute. If Joe Budden and Joe Rogan were going to get forty a year. It was a longer well Joe Rogan is uh like up in the hundred million dollar range so he's in a, another okay, thing. Okay, okay, okay. There okay. there are other podcasts that got, you know, that amount of money for a longer like five year or whatever. So Okay, yeah. The, it was the year thing that I just I got it now. Okay. So, you know, th- this is this is really historic and, and one of the reasons I think it's important to bring it up, not that we're all chasing the bag, chasing, you know, sixty million dollars, but big corporations, big companies like Spotify see the value in podcasts and podcasting and see that podcasts, you know, really bring in major audiences. The vast majority, the statistics say that the vast majority, 80 something percent of folks who listen to podcasts, listen to them on Apple podcasts. If you're listening to this right now, you know, maybe you're listening to this through Apple podcasts, Spotify want some of that audience they want some of those folks so they want all of it so so they'll they'll get these podcasts and make exclusive deals i guess that's one thing that i i left out so this podcast starting mm-hmm. you know whenever mm-hmm. this you know when this goes off will only be available um on spotify call call her daddy what do you think i mean again we we've, we've talked a little bit about how you know so many years ago you probably would have laughed if someone told you that podcasts would be the player that they are but mm-hmm. even even in um like i've <laughs> I, i've over these past well, almost a year now i have looked at some job descriptions for some radio jobs and more of them than not most of them are listing you know five years um 
on-air host or podcasting. Like, podcasts are just being recognized now in a way that it's they valid. haven't been. Yeah. And, you know, Spotify giving them $60 million. So what do you say? You want to you, you wanna give Spotify a call? <laughs> I, and say, hey, we have a podcast called Triloquy. <laughs> Hello? Hello? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I listened. I tried you to said, listen. You said they would be like... <laughs> anyway, go ahead. <laughs> Maybe if you called. But... <laughs> I tried to listen to one episode of of Call Her Daddy. Call Call Her Daddy. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not for me. Yeah, I got. I turned it off pretty quick. Oh, did you? I See, did. I haven't listened at all. Maybe I'll check it out. That's the thing. A lot but, of these but, top shows are. It, it seems like the top shows are so specific, but at the same time broad because you can't talk about top podcasts without talking about Joe Rogan. Mm-hmm. And I'm mm-hmm. not listening to that. No, like, it just it, it just goes to show you that there is an audience for whatever podcast you want to talk about, for yeah. whatever you want to talk about on your podcast. I mean, um, this is my question. If we have all of these, if we have all of these podcasters making big money, millions and millions of dollars, at, at what point does $60 million become the new fifty thousand dollars a year that's what it seems like you know every if, if, if like. everybody's going to get all these millions of dollars then it you're not rich anymore if everybody's pulling in big money i feel like there's just an ecosystem of creators who live in that millions of dollars of range and there's so much of them they well, just have their nice. own they have their own world where none of them seem rich to each other they're all living in anyway i, I don't know i i think it's very I think it's very notable that, you know, if an, if, if an organization like Spotify sees the value in them and is, and is ready to put $60 million behind one show, mm-hmm. you know, what can, you know, public radio stations do? What can orchestras do? You know, it seems like every orchestra should have a podcast. Oh, without question. Know, for, for their audience, you know, but you, you need folks to... Uh, staff those positions and you can't just put anybody behind a microphone we have seen that uh michelle obama has a a podcast out there somewhere there's an oprah podcast there's you know all these celebrities with these podcasts she's the one getting 60 million dollars this woman whose career is not being a celebrity is someone who came up through podcasting and and now here she is you know how would you feel if we talked about sophia a little bit earlier you know the ex-co-host right how would you be feeling if you were her right now? <laughs> Did it end badly? I, I don't. I, I don't. Don't quote me. I, I'll have to go back and 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 read it all. But I don't think it ended well. I don't think it ended well at all. Yeah. Then it would probably probably be salty over it. But if if it was something that it was an agreed upon, like you know, if you said if we agreed that hey, it's time to mix up the the hosting chairs yeah and yeah if it if it ended well then i would say well good for garrett i i think it would be a little different if if somebody i said if it ended well okay okay fine we we end perfectly okay someone else is in your seat 30 days later you see a headline that we got 60 million dollars you gonna feel away (laughs) i i i know that (laughs) you gonna feel away I know that you would. I know that you would do something nice for me. Oh, 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 oh! You because, know, yeah, because that's how magnanimous you are. Of course, of course, you you know, you know Avi, but we but we have I know that sort of relationship, would, right? You know, right. Have, okay, how would you feel if you were Barstool 
if you were one of the people in this organization E-yaw, that built her. E-yaw, e-yaw. <laughs> Yeah, that's like the that's like the person that buys IBM stock when it's a dollar, right? And they sell when it's five, and it's really going to go up to you know hundreds. So it's like, oh man. Do you think Alex Alex Cooper? I think her name is. Do you think Alex Cooper owes anything financial or otherwise to Barstool? I mean, you know, because she left them for a reason. It's not like they nope. had the range to keep her. So Maybe a little something to her former co-host, but nothing to Barstool, no. So while we're on this topic, let me ask you this. Do you think the podcasts are on a bubble? Do you think that the bottom is going to fall out of this at some point? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, when we started Triloquy a couple of years ago, I felt like we were behind the curve. I was like, Oh my gosh, we're late to the podcast game. And, and since we've, you know, come out where this is Opus 104, it's plenty of episode twenties, episode sevens out there that are doing really well. Of sure. course, these folks have, you know, different sorts of audiences, different sorts of, uh, you know, subject matters. Or, I mean, you, you said you've been listening to a Sopranos podcast. That's not a hundred or something episodes in, is it? Or, or is it? Well, they have six seasons mm-hmm. and, so I, I don't know. I think there's you know ten or twelve episodes in a season. Sure. Okay. And they started this when the pandemic began, yeah. and and just as a way to kind of occupy time. But they they break down each episode all the way through. So I've been, just been starting at the beginning and and listening to them break everything down. Um. So yeah, they've got to be close to they they've been doing it since the beginning of the pandemic. We're past that now. So yeah, they got to be up around a hundred. Okay, so I mean, but that, but still, that's one that's one year, you know, right, and maybe right. it's more. Anyway, my point is that I don't think the bubble. I don't think we're at the at that critical point just yet because there's still lots of content out there and uh, lots of reasons to get back into it. Folks are slowly going back into the office, you mm-hmm, know, wasting mm-hmm. all that time in transit or whatever, and you know, just need something to listen to. I went to the, uh, I ran into the store today and was thankful that I had, you know, one of my shows to listen to as I was walking around and shopping around or whatever. So I think as uh, we continue to, you know, move back outside, we're going to see that. I think we're going to see podcast numbers in general go up. Really? And I don't know. Spotify has a lot of people to do a lot of metrics, and I don't think they would just throw $60 million at nothing for nothing. You know? so, <laughs> Probably not. Shout out to all of the podcasters. We already mentioned uh, Katie and Delaney over at Classically Black. I mean, Scott, well, what are the other ones? We got Melanated Moments that I've been uh, getting into lately. There's Double Read Dish. It's, it's all kinds of music-specific, so-called classical and, and, and otherwise mm-hmm. podcasts out there. So shout out to everyone. Uh, if one of y'all beat us to the $60 million, I mean, at least give it, you know, there's a donate button on Triloquy. <laughs> don't, don't be a hater. <laughs> uh, so uh, one of the things that, uh, again, I, I mentioned uh, about this podcast, Call Her Daddy, is that it's described as very sex positive. So getting, uh, you know, uh, staying on the theme of Black Music Month, I went and uh, was looking for some black music that really exemplifies that sex positivity from the woman perspective. And I went all the way back to Ma Rainey, a, uh, a musician who we've talked about here before, but who is often, uh, you know, really highlighted as someone who, you know, m- pushed that pushed that needle as far as black women 
who are musicians being able to show sexuality. It's okay to go there. So um, in, in light of all of that, I chose a tune here called Deep Moaning uh, Blues. Blues. Deep Moaning <laughs> Blues. Uh, this uh, specific recording comes from the soundtrack to Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, a score by the one and only Branford Marcellus. So let's listen to a little bit of this. Sounds hot. That's a juke joint tune. Exactly. I think about the uh, juke joint scene in uh, in Color Purple. One hundred percent. And one of the Juneteenth things I went to this weekend. Uh, that was one of the. They did a flip on Sister, which I thought. Oh, I love that track. <laughs> but but so they played the track a little bit and did a little flip on it. Anyway, it was some nice. it was some music happening this weekend. Shout out to uh, Brand from Marcellus. We're gonna talk about his brother here in a minute. But uh, before we do that, one last accidental here. Uh, what 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 do you think this should get? I don't know. It's it's natural. I think it should get a natural, but something about it just don't sit right with me. I got to give it that flat as well. Kick it off, man. Why? <laughs> okay. So the uh, title of this article from the Baltimore Sun, Marin Alsop made action. history when she took the baton at Baltimore Symphony. She exits now with pride and many frustrations. Where's she going? Uh, you know, she uh, these conductors they they do guest spots and everything everywhere. So as far as a job, she's she fine. Really she she it. doesn't need to be employed. Let me read. Um, so for folks who don't know, Marin Alsop is uh, this conductor, a woman conductor who really made history and was is, was really pushing the needle. Was named uh, Classical Woman of the Year by uh, Performance yeah. Today over yeah. at APM. All kinds of folks just really hailing the work she's done. Um, but. As the title suggests, there were some frustrations on her way out. I'm going to um, read a little bit here. Uh, this is uh, Maestro uh, Alsop speaking. I'm super proud of what we have accomplished, Alsop said during an interview at Joseph Meyerhoff Symphony Hall. That's in Baltimore. Mm -hmm. She says, the BSO's artistic and technical level is comparable to the great orchestras of the world. But it says here, but Alsop also expressed frustration that other community outreach initiatives she proposed were thwarted. She says, if I had to do it all over again, I would have not tried so hard to move the BSO out of the ivory tower, she said. Sometimes you just have to say, okay, this is not where people want to go. Try to enjoy the orchestra and community as much as you can. Shade? Scott, that, like... Or read. I don't know what we should say. That... that trigger my depression real bad okay so we have Marin Alsop this this huge figure mm -hmm. who is saying well you know I, I was trying to do certain things but they want to remain in this ivory tower and I think it's very telling for her to use that phrase by the way you know yep. and how you know she pushed as, as much as she can and 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 that was that 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 makes me sad it, it makes me sad to hear that it, it still makes me sad to think about it now because if not her who if well, her who take take some solace in the fact that we still have Joanne Follett out there. Yeah, we have Apo Shu. Mm -hmm. um, is she with Hawaii? I forget. I don't know where she's at these days. Um, 
there's formerly uh, women's philharmonic right right course. and you know let's Kalina not Beauville, you know assistant director down you and know, th- let's not are, let's not forget about the things that lara downs is doing you know she's got a, a new digital label for uh black composers mm-hmm. and uh also we have last week's guest rachel barton pine who's been promoting black music for 20 plus years but all of, but none of these people uh none of those people you were naming are you know working in these i don't know like these massive sort of institutional historic american orchestras joanne fillette has led the buffalo well, yeah. for more than 20 years well sure sure but i guess what i'm saying is when we talk about laura downs uh rachel barton pine and all of these people i think we need to keep it specific to the orchestras because the recordings existing out there is one thing but if the experience in these orchestra halls is not changing how far how long before you know, that gap is just too wide to be returned. Mm. When I got into mm-hmm. radio, one of my, uh, you know, back in 2016, one of my concerns was that my, what I thought about when I thought, what thought about classical radio and what I thought about uh, when I thought about my job as a bassoonist, those two things were very different. I mean, do you think any orchestra, I, mean, I don't mean to get on a soapbox, but do you think any orchestra out here is really playing Baccarini or really playing Mozart or Haydn? You know, I mean, it might happen sometimes, but I can count on, you know, one hand how many times I performed in a symphonic setting a Mozart symphony. So why is that aesthetic, you know, at the, we're, we're getting off track here. Yeah, right? I, don't, I don't have an in, answer Anyway, for all, all, all I'm saying is that, it's one thing to talk about the recording side, you know, and there are mm-hmm. some, some really important people doing things over there. But for the orchestra side to just be sort of stagnant as far ahead as it might be. In, I see what in you're some saying. Ways, yeah. You know, it's that that's it's very significant for Marin Alsop of all people yeah. to be saying this. This is not someone who we've never heard of or somebody who doesn't really, you know, have an influential role in the general ecosystem who, whose words no, don't I mean see anything. Point. Yeah. You know, this is Marin Alsop who says that she could not push the needle over there well then i guess take solace in the fact that we still have joanne valletta yeah and leave the other ones off the list I, it's a good point I, I i look i appreciate you're making light of it but i think this is very serious this is very serious what what are we what is it going to look like in 20 years if right now excuse me the uh, the little things that she wanted to do you know can't can't even be done and again someone of influence someone of power within the general ecosystem yeah i got you yeah um and you're preaching to the converted um i i don't know what it's going to take man i don't we talk about these institutions lasting no matter what you know no no matter who's called a racist who's x y and z there's always going to be that audience buying those tickets right are they not should we not consider them our opposition as well what do, what, do, what do we do about the people who are going to buy the tickets no matter what? It's something that I think about when I see Mary Nelson. How do you change like those this. minds? Yeah. 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 That's a great. I, I don't know. Maybe we just need to start uh, protesting, chaining ourselves to the, the doors of Symphony Hall, making those people feel unsafe, make sure they don't want to go down there, listen to the same old stuff. And I don't know. I, mm. I, I start to think radically when, when it comes to all that. Look out. I remember you said that you. Um, took a cab with someone over there at the Baltimore Symphony coming back from Sphinx one year. Yeah, but I forget his name now. But, do you, but um, do He you was remember, the president. Do you remember his general vibe? I know that you said he had heard of Triloquy. Maybe he wasn't so impressed and by the way things we've said about the Baltimore Symphony. No, his, his eyebrows went up and he grinned. He's like, oh, okay, you work on that. Cool. Um, <laughs> yeah, we, we had a, a nice conversation. It was, it was pleasantries. We didn't get too deep into anything. Okay. 
if you had if you had the you know if you were caught yourself catching a cab with him now you know know, knowing this would it be the pleasantries would you say something to him man i i (laughs) would you put your earbuds in (laughs) i don't know you you don't know i'm i'm nervous to say how i think that i would act you know which is how which is how you you say you're nervous to say how you think you would act uh, I I don't know if I would have the seeds to call the man out right there in the cab when you know it's a it's a that would that would be an uncomfortable situation for him and I think it would get confrontational when I that's not my nature. Yeah, you're like I'm not trying to fight right now. So seven in the morning, <laughs> I would have to say something. I would I, have to I say know, something. I know you would. I mean, I wouldn't accuse him. I would just say, "Look, what's what's going on, sir? Sir? What, what sir?" <laughs> Why is Mirren Alsop saying this? What what are y'all pushing back on? You know, I don't know. We need more folks to do that. Maybe I should, well, I'll link this article. If y'all want to go to the Baltimore Symphony website and uh, let them know how you feel, I encourage that as well. Because, you know, like as as we were uh, sort of discussing in the uh, in the downbeat, what good are we? What good are people of color? What good are women in these positions if we can't? assert you know the creative diversity that right. being in those positions should right. should manifest should give and if they brought her on to be the music director slash uh principal conductor shouldn't she be driving a lot of these initiatives shouldn't isn't that up to the md to fill some of these programs and yeah do these and things? i mean and if i'm giving some slack to a conductor you know that the, the uh, issue is serious right <laughs> i mean yeah i would be thinking well you brought me on you know so why are you why are you handcuffing me when i want to do something to improve your image and quite frankly Mary Alsop don't need the baltimore symphony she, no she can she's go where be she everywhere wants. and yeah. and one day she's going to find a group that does want to move forward and and the sad thing about it is that the audiences down in baltimore will not be able to the communities in baltimore will not be able to benefit to from benefit, that because right, right. it's some board member or some somebody who's standing in the way yeah. anyway uh, I guess this is the last little accidental. I gave that my accidentals. Yeah. So to move us into the second movement uh, for Scott and I to uh, take the second ending, there's actually a tune called Baltimore that I would like to share. Apparently, this is a cover. And I can't remember. Do, do you know who uh, covered that song, Baltimore? I, I, I forget who. Maybe we can look it up later. But it's the Nina Simone version right. that I know. And we're in Black Music Month here. So we're going to listen to a little bit of that. This is uh, Baltimore as performed by Nina Simone. Guitarist making one chord sound sexy. Oh yeah, <laughs> and then of course Nina Simone is on one little melody, but you know, again, putting everything on it that she does. And who? Shout out to the late great Nina Simone. I mean, the woman who who inspired in me the phrase "black classical music." That's mm. how she saw her music, what she performed, what we just heard. We're talking about that uh, Caribbean, that Jamaican backbeat or the bubble, as they call it. Mm-hmm. Um, we have the tradition of, of, of flipping and 
uh, sampling and borrowing that we see throughout the Western uh, European canon. So there's there's no reason to not consider this a part of the classical repertoire. There have been some folks lately, I, I shouted out all of the new listeners, there have been a lot of folks challenging, you know, the basic premise of this show when we talk about, you know, reframing classical music. So I just offer that as an example. Tell me what is not classic. Tell me what is not classical about that performance. And 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 we can have that conversation. But as far as I'm concerned, we have to enshrine that aesthetic and all other aesthetics as a part of the classical American experience, certainly during Black History Month. If there's anybody we need to be talking about during Black Music Month, rather, excuse me, Black Music Month is Nina Simone. And she Agreed. herself said black classical music. So that's what we're going to do. I first discovered her playing jazz overnight at the uh, station where I started out at. And so I primarily associate, I, I've never heard her play classical. You know, I've not, I haven't heard any classical track apart from that Bach run that she does in the middle of oh, that, that too. Uh, Love me or leave me. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so I've always associated her with jazz and I was listening to my sting dream of the blue turtles album. I uh, love that record, mm -hmm. especially on an LP now. But Branford Marsalis played soprano saxophone, uh, went on tour with him, and he took a lot of guff for from jazz people, for uh, from classical. He took guff from jazz people mm -hmm. when he played classical, and vice versa. So, like when he, whenever he stepped outside of jazz, people were like, "Why are you doing that? Why are you playing that pop stuff with him? That's corny." Mm -hmm. You know, what do you think? But then, the, but but you're saying he would get it from both sides. Yeah. So it's classical people hating on the jazz. They need to shut the fuck up, first and foremost, because jazz is classical. It's American classical. There, where else does where else did that come from? Why would we not consider that a part of the classical canon? We we need to. Uh, jazz, I think, is the first step when it comes to just breaking down some of these things, because I'm sorry, when, when I think about Duke Ellington, when I think about uh, Ma Rainey, who we were listening to, all, all these folks, Coltrane, that's class. You bought us the um, Dell, the, uh, the LP to love Supreme. Uh, love Supreme. That's classical music. I don't, I don't, I don't care about, I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm the, the, the y'all know, well, y'all know how I feel. Basically what I'm, what I'm getting to is Wynton Marsalis, um, uh, He's written several pieces for violinist Nicola Benedetti, yep. like some uh, um, uh, variations on Scottish tunes. I think for the solo fiddle. You you ho you hosted. I got one to of do those things live. I got to do the play by play on that one. Yeah, um, but I listened to his violin concerto that he wrote for Nicola, mm -hmm. and when it got to the finale, I was walking radar when I was listening to it, really enjoying it. And when it got to the finale, I thought I had moved over into another playlist. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? Because it sounded like every song by a band called Hill Stomp, the way that it started. It's it boom, bap, boom, bap, boom, bap, boom, bap. Here, let's see. You think the orchestra had to rehearse the, the stomp claps? <laughs> I have no idea. I'm not, I'm not saying. <laughs> Here, this is a Nicola.
I like it. They're getting after it. I like it. Shout out to the uh, Philadelphia Orchestra there. There's so many things that have to work exactly right. So, you know, the the title of the, the subtitle of that movement, Hoot Nanny. First of, first of all, that means, so if I were on the podium, I would say, okay, everybody, put your bow down. Now pick it up, not with your bow hand. <laughs> Just a regular hand, just a regular fist. <laughs> now play it like that. Now when we get that sound, I'm gonna say, okay, now use your regular bow hand, use your and your, your so-called classical bow hand, and do that. Mm-hmm. And I think I hear some of that in that recording. So you know, especially when I hear the basses matching what Nicola is doing. So yeah, you asked what I would like to hear more of in the new music coming out. Yeah, and why not more of that? And it's authentic. It's not like some, you know, white composer that we got to cancel because, <laughs> because he's, you know, ripping off black aesthetics. I mean, Wynton Marcellus, who is undeniable and all, you know, I think he still holds the record for winning classical and jazz uh, in the same year I'll make at a the bo- Grammys. I'll you make know, a, so he's sure. the real deal. So I'll make a, I'll make a bold statement here. I, I think that I would listen to Hoot Nanny over Hoedown. Oh, of course. Oh, you mean uh, Aaron Copeland's yeah. Hoedown? You hear that, Aaron Copeland? I'm still slow with this. You hear that, Aaron Copeland? <laughs> Nobody is interested in your hoedown, your Saturday night waltz. And I, and I would say, you know, we're kind of joking, but I say that to the music programmers, to the music directors at these orchestras. Yes, you want that that Western feel, that that's something that can get the kids going or the crowd going. Why not that? We, 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 have, we have some things. Because Copeland didn't think that women should be composing. He probably didn't want to see him on stage anyway. So, you know. Aaron Copeland. Anyway, my my hat is up. Aaron Copeland. (laughs) All I'm saying is that my hat is off to the collaboration between Nicola and Winton to put this together, because not only is it a new piece and it and it's different enough to be interesting, but it it also has that familiarity that I think a lot of music directors are looking for. Are they dating or something? Don't know. Oh. <laughs> I thought I, I remember you saying something about that, but then you weren't sure if. Anyway, I'm not trying to get you in trouble. Never mind. Never mind. Don't worry about it. All I'm saying is, <laughs> when I heard that detail, it was not embargoed. <laughs> okay, so they are dating. You heard? I don't. I heard that. <laughs> all right. All right. Anyway. All right. So uh, the way that I uh, took the second movement. Uh, this past week. So as I, if I didn't say it, I'll, I'll say it again. Last week was sort of a rough week for me reading that Marin Alsop, yeah. you know, how, she, how she just saying, just throwing her hands up in the air, other stuff that was going on, you know, in, in my circle. So I found myself feeling away. Okay. So uh, that brought me to a tune called feel uh, a track from the Pulitzer prize winning album, damn by Kendrick Lamar. Now. Okay. We talk about classical music and and redefining classical music. I think when we celebrate uh, names like Tanya Leon, you know, the uh, latest winner of the Pulitzer Prize, when we talk about Anthony Davis, a member of the Triloquy family and Pulitzer Prize winner, we go all the way back to George Walker. You know, uh, the, the Pulitzer Prize stuff, I think they gave Duke Ellington one posthumously. So when we talk about all of this black music that a Pulitzer committee has deemed, uh, you know, to that level, classic, 
if if I may, I think we can't leave out Kendrick Lamar. I think it's it's too easy to say, oh, well, that's rap and he doesn't belong in the conversation. No. Black Music Month, uh, the history of black music and the Pulitzer Prize, I think it deserves equal footing. So all of all of that to say that I spent a lot of time affirming for myself not only um, the the compositions on that album, Damn, but what he was saying in the music. And again, when I was when I was all up in my feelings and everything, the tune feel really made a lot of sense. I was really vibing with everything he was saying. So. Um, that's how it took the second movement this week. We'll listen to a little bit of his first verse here. I feel like a joke with my shoulders. I feel like I'm losing my focus. I feel like I'm losing my patience. I feel like my thoughts in the basement feel like I feel like you're miseducated. Feel like I don't want to be bothered. I feel like you may be the problem. I feel like it ain't no tomorrow. Fuck the world. The world is ending. I'm done pretending. And fuck you if you get offended. I feel like friends been overrated. I feel like the family been faking. I feel like the feelings are changing. Feel like my daughter compromised and jaded. Feel like you want to school and that's how I made it. Feel like I ain't feeling you I feel like you miseducated. That's one of the ones, that's one of the big ones that gets me just, you know, in my angry feelings because I feel like I'm seeing something and I'm feeling something that you just do not see. And I, I feel like it's it's really validating to hear that coming from that perspective, from the from the rap aesthetic, some of those same feelings. Do you ever have any of those feelings? You know, I feel like there's no tomorrow. I feel like ain't nobody praying for me. I feel like I feel, you know, everything he's saying here. What What, what do you think? I only feel that way in the morning. Yeah, mornings are the rough time. Well, for me, especially when I open my eyes in the morning, I'm like, okay, who's in my inbox? And what is today going to look like? Right. Mornings are those are those rough times. Yeah. Is this a, a tune that I, I know that you love the tune love mm -hmm. from this album. What about this track feel? Is this a, one that you would consider something to help you in those moods would it push you deeper in it what, what sort of use do you have for that sort of musical aesthetic there are things that he raps about that i think uh, most people will be able to identify with but you also have to realize that he's talking about things at a he's talking about things at a much different level than i i can feel and understand yeah yeah and so all i do is just listen and try my best but you're right, I do love that track, Love. And as a matter of fact, I, I definitely think that that is a release to have on LP to mm -hmm. really... Oh, yeah, I have. It's a green disc, right, too. It's to, nice. really, to really get the full spectrum of it. Do when you when you say you listen to it and try to, you know, get what you can or whatever, is, is that not what we beg these audiences to do with Beethoven and Brahms? Listen to it and just see how it empowered, you know, whatever. Just I, I feel like that's an expectation we put on the Western European canon, mm. but but an expectation that we don't put on this Pulitzer Prize winning music. We just it's so easy to put it in the corner, you know. When we were talking with Rissy Palmer all those opuses ago, yeah. uh, I mentioned that a lot of times we want to categorize by what we see instead of what we hear or what we feel and, even you right know, what the music so, can make us feel right and so um you know maybe it, maybe it, it just boils down to people not wanting to give a pulitzer to a rap album <laughs> well he got it so right so right. be mad be mad 
Well, another one of the uh, probably the the most popular, the hit single from uh, that album, Damn, is a tune called Humble. First of all, all of the all of the tracks are one word titles, which I think is kind of cool. That's so good. The, the popular uh, the the hit single was called Humble. Uh, today's guest, Babatunde Akimbaboye, a, um, I, I think he's a tenor. I'm sorry, uh, 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 Babatunde, if you're not a tenor, you sound like a tenor. Anyway, uh, he hit viral on the internet by taking that tune humble and singing the famous Largo al Factotum nice. from uh, Barber of Seville on top of it. And 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 it went. And a lot of people were watching. So the first thing uh, that I asked Baba Tunde is, why do you think that went viral? What was it about this that attracted so many people? And how can we convert all of these million clicks into seats in an opera house? What has to happen? So that's where we start our conversation and we go into uh, several other things. But to transition us... I thought we would listen to a little bit of that performance. Let's so do. Here's Kendrick Lamar's Humble featuring Babatunde Akim Baboye singing yeah, Rosina. Yeah. And that took me a while to figure out because, you know, I, I liked it. I knew that people were, that a few people would think it was entertaining or funny or kind of cool. But the way it spread was like, okay, there's something here that I'm that mm-hmm. I, I'm going to need to think to get to. And right. I forgot, well, um, at this point in my life, because of my career and so on, most of the Black people I know happen to be opera singers. And so Black opera singers are very normal to me. It's like completely normal. However, to the rest of the world, especially Black opera singers that are not wearing a tuxedo, it's, you know, it's not something that they've seen very often. And so a Black guy just sitting in the car or whatever, you know, I just look like another regular young guy, you know, I'm listening to hip hop. Everything makes sense. And then, you know, they hear vocally that, oh, I'm about to do something. And their mind has already set to one of like four possible things that is going to happen. And this is almost like the parallel opposite of any of those things that they were thinking about. Just like this, this um, sound that they attribute to a bunch of other things that they're not seeing in the picture. And so there was that, uh, that mm-hmm. I think was exciting. And then it sounded good. Like I, like they, um, I often describe music or I, I get in a lot of conversations about what music is. Cause you know how, when we hear good news, we say, Oh, that's music to my ears. And yeah. I think at some point originally there was, it was more, it was more of a, this, I don't want to say more of a description of a feeling, but there was, you know, you hear arranged sounds often, but when it feels a certain way, you know, Oh, that's music. Yeah. Cause it, yeah. It's a, you know. yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. And so something happened in there where they were like, oh, they, they got the feeling like this is like a new music because I recognize the style of singing. I recognize these 808s, but, and I'm getting that feeling. So I think there was that. Um, I uh, it, it was interesting watching, you know, I posted on Facebook and you can have the different reactions and the yeah. balance between the love and the laughing is almost like 50-50. Yeah. And it kind of tells me that people aren't 100% sure what is going on, like what, what they're feeling, how 
to deal with this, how to, it's, it's, um, so I think it was something new and, and exciting. And I think the juxtaposition was, was fun for us because, uh, I don't know, something about, especially like this time we're realizing a lot of, um, uh, I guess like sacred cows, if you will, are sure. false gods. Sure. Um, and so this rec- this, um, and I think that just played more into it. It's like, oh, opera isn't this elitist thing. Oh my gosh, I sound like every opera outreach program. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> opera isn't this elitist, like highbrow. You know, it isn't. It doesn't. It isn't just that. It isn't it? Can show up elsewhere and still be authentic. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so there was a lot of that newness for people. I think. What I love to see was all of the different news outlets and media sources that covered it. But I have to say, it's a little disappointing. Maybe I shouldn't use the word disappointing, but I think it's notable that among those news outlets is not your BETs, is not your shade rooms, is not your essence. Uh, With that in mind, who is that type of content for? Even if we get all the way to the point of getting that fusion of opera and hip hop into the opera house, who is it for at the end of the day? Uh, and that depends on how it's made. Um, Cause you know, you take the, you, you've had two different cultures make the same dish and you know w- what came from which house. Yep. Um, <laughs> yeah. yep. And so I think the, the, I've come across a lot of um, marriages between hip hop and classical music. And often when I can identify why it wasn't successful in the cases where it's not successful, it's mm-hmm. often um, the person isn't bilingual. They're not fluent in hip hop and classical. It's either they have a, they sure, strengthen sure. one and the other. And especially in the, the well, <laughs> um, we, we, we often see especially I think because we're classical musicians, we often see people who are more in the classical realm dipping into uh, mm-hmm. hip hop. Whereas in that case, you're making it for the, the standard classical audience, essentially uh, white people for the most part. Mm-hmm. And I think if you, yeah, it's just starting from a different ingredient, different base. Um, right. <laughs> base. Uh, it's, it, yeah, for me, Hip hop is is the is the structure. It's like everything. Like when I marry the two, opera has to essentially kind of submit to whatever the structure of the beat is. Like yeah. whatever the the hip hop rules would be, that's where it goes. Because ah, is always impressive. Like it's always exciting. It doesn't matter what the melody out is. of nowhere. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> my bad. No, that's great. <laughs> Yeah, it doesn't it like it. You can apply that style of singing to anything. So, having uh, so because it's attributed to a certain set of musical rules and style, doesn't I don't know why we think that's it's exclusive to that. Like, no, 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 mm-hmm. oh, that can anywhere it you can put it anywhere. And so, put it in hip hop. You know how hip hop goes, everyone knows the hip hop, we know the rules, we know the, the world, structure, yeah. and that's a, and that's another reason why I think it's so. Success because we see operas, you know, like um, modern day, uh, you know, the modern day music listener, just regular people who are used to music, like, oh, okay, you know, the verse, chorus, verse, chorus, bridge, yep. you know, modulation, finish. That, like, that's mm-hmm. what I know. So you hear an aria that's not ABA, or even like, even an ABA aria is just like, 
the, the form is unfamiliar. You're like, okay, this is high art. I'm supposed to appreciate this and just take it in or whatever. But doing it in something that's more familiar is, is I, <laughs> if you want them to, that's the one thing that's driven me crazy about opera the entire time. Cause I, it's, it feels as if they're deliberately trying not to be successful, like trying to shoot themselves in the foot. Yeah. Just trying because, to preserve something that is obviously not relevant to a lot of people. It's it, it, as is, and they need they they want it, and I could tell opera fans love opera and they want opera to do well. But there's some thinking that if it changes, it'll no longer be opera. And I'm like, how do you think we got here? Right. <laughs> like it changed to right. this point, and at some point, you guys decided like, oh, I like this change. Let's make this what it is forever. Nothing, and that's why that's why it's dying. It's like, oh, you know, I liked my kid most when he was like five years old. He was a sweetheart. I didn't want him to grow anymore, so I did what I could to keep him from growing. And you're wondering what's wrong with him now? Like, no, no, no. Like, we the familiarity of the structure of like pop songs, if opera really wanted the public to like it, they would go meet the public where they are instead of trying to get the public to come to opera and appreciate it. Oh, you don't understand it. It's just, it's a choir taste. No, no, you know where they are. And they're not, you've been trying for years. They're they're not coming. And there are a bunch of reasons why that opera people can't seem to see, but actually make the effort to meet them where they are. And it's, it's, it feels like opera just keep, the opera industry keeps making more operas specifically for opera fans. Yeah. And yeah. that's it. When we talk about the fusion of the marriage of opera and hip hop, I can't help but to think about Beyonce's Carmen. I feel like yeah. it was too early. It was a it, little before it, the internet. It was, exactly. But, but, but I've been a stand for decades. So of course I, I know it. What do you have to say about, you know, because you said, you know, it depends on how it's made, what the base is. The base of that fusion of hip hop and opera was very much hip hop. It was very much R&B. It was it was very much black. I, I wonder if you, you know, see that as a jumping off point or saw it as a jumping off point or think it's something that we should return to. I think it's time to I, I agree with you as ahead of its time. That was that was the two things I think kept it from being something that's still regularly discussed today. Uh, It was a little early for, you know, for where we were culturally. And once again, the, that bilingual thing Um, Hmm. I've seen, and because I'm in opera, it's, it's, it's glaring to me when I see it, but there's this idea outside the perception of opera of it being like light, uh, lacy, frilly, and, and not, you know, that, 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 the the big heavy intense very small right. like op, like they don't they that that's not the perception it's like so I think with um with Carmen's hip opera they didn't lean, you know it was a little uh, lighter than it could have been and I think it's because they didn't understand how heavy they could go and it still feel mm. like opera um, which for me was that that was one of my big draws coming from like a, you know my I don't think I've, I've been like strong fans of a bunch of artists, but the longest period of my life that I was like obsessed was with Busta Rhymes. I hmm. ate, like I lived and breathed everything Busta yeah, Rhymes his did. music videos could be considered little micro operas, right? The way they were staged they are. and how they weird are. they were. Exactly. <laughs> and full out, like he wasn't yeah. holding back. Like I, when you hear like rage in opera, like you see in the honest and someone's like in rage and you hear what that sounds like, there's nothing light and like frilly about it. It's, it's, 
it looks it's uh and so there's something about that in hip hop like we have this this like energy and everything we do like you know uh Toby I forgot his last name it's an evil last name but he did the song um this old five five if you black we in sync bye oh, yeah, bye yeah. bye he always yep. has his wife yep. and his family in videos like it's a lot of his music is happy it's somehow aggressive but it's it's light, happy, and <laughs> right. fun. It's like we we have that energy inside of us. That's why you know when we're in mixed spaces, you have a gr- group of black people. They get excited, they get happy. Other people get scared because it's this big. I'm like, <laughs> look, there's a like there, there's already like a there's there's a, a slot for that in opera. Like that kind of energy, there's room for that. You see how big an opera stage is, like that kind of. So and I think that's another thing for me with um. With Buster Rhymes, I'm a I'm a I, I'm kind of big energy animated, even for a Nigerian person, because Nigerian people are, yeah. Um, but <laughs> when I got to the U.S., the like I, Buster Rhymes was that level of energy, and it was okay, and it kind of showed me like, oh, okay, I there's there's a split there's a space for that kind of energy in the society. Cool, it kind of gave me permission to just be, and yep. so yeah. Uh, don't know why I went to Buster Rhymes, but I forgot why I went, made that detour, but. But just how, how how out there his his art is, as you know, talking about the fusion of those ideas, you know, uh, it, that uh, that energy. Thank you. That energy, the and all the energy like standard in hip hop, there's space for that in opera. Like it, it's they're the same. We're just like two. Uh, sorry, we're two and like two extreme ends that um of like the musical performance, like um. I'm trying to think of another style of music that's that's that over the top. Like black people would go hard opera, hard. And I'm just like, it, yeah, it feels like you went away, but like you're getting back closer. And it's like, come on, come on. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 I like yeah. that. I mean, I'll I'll stick with Beyonce only as a means of a segue. So when we talk about Black is King, I'm mm-hmm. sure there's a lot of you know things we can talk about as far as the staging of that and you know Mm -hmm. how operatic it was and x y and z one of the things that i appreciated most maybe the thing i appreciated most was how the idea of being black and beautiful not to sound trite but just Mm -hmm. you know black and trendy i'll say the idea of being black and trendy was so different one of the one of my favorite scenes in black is king there um the little boy goes into this warehouse where it looks right down and everything but there's mm-hmm. still some glamour to it and this scar like character has this giant yellow snake yeah, around his yeah, neck yeah, yeah. And, i mean so my, my, my long way of asking you know in the way that um so many of us are openly black and forwardly black you even throw being openly and forwardly nigerian into your mix and into your identity i, I wonder how that impacts um, your perspective when it comes to diversifying and creating equity in American classical spaces. What does your Nigerianness say to your experience as a Black person living in America when it comes to these art forms and changing things? So I was born in the U.S. Um, I lived here for, I think I was like five or six when I first went to Nigeria and lived there for another like six or seven years, then came back to America. So that moving back and forth, especially in my formative years, gave me, um, gave me, a, I, I, the perspective I have is, um, I, I use the analogy of the, the frog in hot, uh, like the frog in hot water, where mm-hmm. if you put a frog in boiling water, it'll jump out. But if you put a frog in room temperature water and heat it, it'll stay there and boil to death. 
I think because I spent a number of years of my life living in a place where everyone looked like me, where you went in the restaurant and the busers, the servers, the manager and the guests all were black. So there wasn't that like, oh, you know how to treat someone different, you know, according sure. to their skin color, that 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 whole thing sure. um, gave me uh, a, I don't want to say a clearer perspective, but there are things that are wrong in the way we operate as especially in the opera world that are glaring to me because I didn't grow up in a in a culture where it was unfortunately normal to think of black people whether you're white or black to think of black people as a little less or at least at at the very best knowing that other people think of you as as less even though you're not right. and having to do that regular work and so, you know, I just, I didn't have, I didn't, um, <laughs> I didn't have that, uh, that, that guard up, that shield. And, you know, I just went, yeah. oh, everything, you know, every, everyone likes everyone, everyone, you know. If you thought it was this, sweet, as they say. Yeah, yeah, I thought it was sweet. <laughs> and shit was not sweet. Um, and so being, um, it was very easy for me to, to spot <laughs> some things, uh, some issues and, uh, requests that were made of me that were, there were you know that almost were standard. Some of the some of the roles I get asked to do that are normal. It's just you don't see why it's weird to like ask me ask me to be a runaway slave. It's like how <laughs> I only laugh because that is that's so glaringly ridiculous to me. But I guess some you people have just... <laughs> no idea how many times I've been asked to do some sort of some sort of slave something or some sort of like old world African something. And it's like, you know, you would be, you want to be shocked, but then you realize that opera is still doing blackface in the sure. 21st century. And then it's sure. like, yeah, yeah. That, that You guys really are in that Amber case of like 1800 culture. And you think it's still that way today. Anyways, um, being from the different culture, I think has helped me. One has helped me see how similar we are as far as like Nigerians out specifically, I'll say, and um uh and and black people in the US, because yeah, it one, it has not been that long. And two, it's it's just it's it makes me emotional sometimes where I see little things and how uh unrelated to you know unrelated to music when I saw how black women got their hair braided here, you know, just find someone in the family, yeah. someone, but whatever. I was like. I was like, you guys do that here too? And <laughs> yeah, you because know, it was just, yeah, you know, it's just, and knowing that it happened because it's still that way because it just never stopped. And so many of things that just somehow were either um, shifted a little bit. Those are the fun ones or just never stopped and just kept yeah. going. And it's just like, uh, so yeah, um, getting to see those, those commonalities uh, and getting to see those, the, the differences, what is, considered acceptable in this culture um, was was a strength and a weakness at the same point because, you know, it's rough when everyone is expecting you, Black people, white people, the same, are expecting you to operate and move a certain way to be, to, to tolerate certain things. And it, it feels completely insane. Like, not even like, oh, it's slightly out of my, it's like, this is the opposite of what you actually want and you actually, like, why is this everyone? Okay. So it was a lot of feeling crazy, but yep. learning to dance and then figuring out 
how to move through the worlds and what's normal, what's accepted. And, and you get a, you, you learn a lot by having to um, play this regular game of uh, uh, assimilating, you know, going yeah. born in the U S I was like first grade when I got to Nigeria, culture shock had to assimilate quick. Cause you know, kids make fun of you and you, you get the motivation sure. getting back to the U S eighth grade, you know, eighth grade Americans with a Nigerian accent. That's not fun. Right. <laughs> and so, right assimilating again. So I just got used to learning and figuring that out. And I think, um, I, I think it, it has helped me see, uh, it, it saved me through my career just from issues. And I think it's helped me um, see what I, <laughs> I need to do with my music. Cause my music is very much a form of activism. Um, right. And I don't, I'm not too loud about that because if everyone knows that it's not going to work the way I'm planning for it to work. And so, um, but you know, but uh, you know, uh, I still talk about it. The um, it's what, what is necessary and where the, the disconnects and what, and the, the, the complete um, break in human thinking uh, because sorry, I'm, I know I'm, I'm trying to keep this succinct. Because of, I think, all that time assimilating, being able to pull the pieces, I've been able to spot those cultural things that could, one, um, keep this that style of singing, that operate erratic style of singing uh, alive. Like, I know what is, is desired, what people actually want from opera. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it's not, and it's so funny that opera is focusing on the things people want the least, the people care about today the least. Right. Um, you know, for instance, like opera singers, we're all great singers. Once we get to like, I think like 80, we, like the best opera singer, like a singer that's like 80% that's good, that that good, it's really all the public needs. That's at that last bit of percent that like perfectionism, that, that, I mean, it's nice, but we're so far, we forgot that opera started off as a story that they were trying to better communicate and they added some song to it. Mm-hmm. And they've, we've lost that wanting to tell a story, wanting to, you know, it's like, they can't hear us. How do we reach them? Like add music. Okay, sing it. Okay, the singing works. Add more music. Okay, okay, it's working. We're, we're reaching them. And they yep. stopped trying to, trying to get to the people. And now they focus on how good the singing is. So. Well, you've told that story of opera. You know, you've had successful performances both here in the United States and in Lagos, I read. You know, I, I wonder what um, success in a very, you know, American and every bad way we, we think of you mm-hmm. know, those power structures, success in those spaces, but also success in these, you know, very black spaces, these ancestral spaces. What is the what is the overlap there? What, what what's what's in the middle that can really, you know, pull us together and pull more people into the concert hall in your experience? The stories. If opera gets back to focusing on trying to tell stories um, as, as interestingly impossible, meaning, you know, you see an opera singer, you know, who's gone mad at her wedding and she stands perfectly still and sings for five minutes. And that's called a mad scene. Um, right. Shout out like to the that. Donizetti, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, like, um, we're not, you're not telling a story of a woman who just went mad at her wedding night. Like that. I, I'm not getting that. And so, uh, cause that is one thing that opera, I think opera people, we like the story. I mean, we go for the singing, but there's an affection for the story. 
like we there's affection for the story there yeah. black people obviously love storytelling like we love stories and i think it's the african thing african or nigerian specifically we like you tell any nigerian my age or younger you go around and go tori tori and they'll go tori which is a way in nigeria where we say like hey i'm gonna tell a story there's a call and response that everyone knows like oh story time but okay it's such a part of the culture where randomly like you don't even know these kids you're just outside someone goes tori tori all the kids get excited tori and they come running over and they want it they sit to hear a story because people tell stories we love stories so that um so I, I guess uh, as far as like the being successful um, of all of those, all of the, the typical meanings of that, I'm going to focus on, uh, I, I don't want to say fame, but the, the, the appeal to the public. Yeah. Because as an artist, that's kind of like, yeah, I want to be popular. I want to be famous. But what that, I mean, that's just what it looks like when a lot of people enjoy my art and which is what I think uh, anyone wants. And so as far as that goes with Nigeria, I haven't like talked about this out loud to a lot of people, but um, I've been collecting folk songs and old stories. And because all, all Nigerian stories have songs, fantastic songs. They're really, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, because Nigeria is a tonal language, it's very easy to accidentally fall into a song uh, through repetition of a story or a phrase, you know, cause it already sounds like a melody. Um, so, that is so uh, I intend to fully I'm, and I've just gotten started like fully fuse and fully create that marriage between hip hop and opera um, because I don't think to the point where we kind of see it as a unit because then I think mm-hmm. that art form that the you know those 808s with this epic style of singing with those stories and those songs and those languages um i think can be very, uh, i don't want to say unifying like you know bring everyone together sure, but sure, sure but yeah i mean and we already have the evidence that that sort of thing would be fiscally successful the the excuse that a lot of folks love to make in these institutions is that oh well we have to just make sure that we're selling tickets i mean at in uh in tyler perry's heyday as a playwright you mm-hmm. couldn't get into any of those buildings to see one of those plays, you know, and I, I think it's the same thing that we could do for so-called classical music if we would open those doors in that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, you know, speaking selfishly as an artist, I would like to make more music that my friends and family want to come see. <laughs> right. Not because it's you, but be- Not because, because it's, it's you, you that- and it's art yes. that they want, you know. Exactly. Like I I have a friend or a friend of a friend and that's already part of my point who was in the cast for Hamilton. She had to like <laughs> okay. turn off her Facebook because there was nonstop requests like I want to come see your show, I want to come see your show, you know, that's like wanting like a general mm-hmm. desire to go see a stage performance that lasts for hours in 2020, you know, or, you know, the 21st century. Um, So that's something I would like to do. I would like to like, yeah, selling tickets is dope, but I would like to have this be a genre of music where on a Saturday night, you know, and I talk with other opera singers about it. It breaks my heart that we as young opera singers, Saturday night, pocket full of money, free time. We're not like, hey, you want to go to the opera? No, we don't go to the opera unless a colleague is in there or some mega star or we're studying a role. There yeah. are there. I say that like generally there are some of us that genuinely, genuinely enjoy sure. going to 
to to go see these operas in like the full length and are focused the whole time, aren't falling asleep or anything. Um, but from my personal research, it's it's unusual for it to like that genuine like one you know to go to an opera before a movie, even though they're roughly they could be the same length. Sure, sure. Yeah. I, I didn't want to. Um... How, how can I say what, what one thing that I know that you have an opinion on a unique opinion on an unapologetic opinion on that I uh, wanted the audience to hear um, is the way black musicians sort of rise to the through the ranks, especially in opera and become, as you were speaking to, you know, these crowd favorites, these people that audiences love. There's this idea that I can't shake that the higher you climb, the more. Uh, respectable to, you know, for lack of a better word, that you have to be. And not to say that Black people can't genuinely be themselves and highly successful in opera. It just seems to be very rare, if I can say that. I, no, I, I'm, you're, you're absolutely correct. And even as an opera singer, I was, I'm still shocked to continuously learn that. Um, you know, it feels like, you know, to get to the top in opera, I feel, you know, you're, you're, there are a lot of gatekeepers. And I think it feels like in order as a black person, in order to get through all those gates, you've got to leave something behind. Because uh, there was a point where I thought as, you know, as a black person, you know, the difficulty and the struggle of trying to make it in any predominantly white industry. Mm-hmm. So if you get up there, like you've learned some things, you you like, and I I would think that the people up there would be almost a little hardened as far as like their experiences go, but I found when tested and and questioned very consistently, it's almost the more successful you are. And I don't want to make that correlation, but it's it my experiences are saying the more successful you are, the the more likely you. It just feels like they, their interests lie more with their position than who they are as like as far as a black person. And I get that you know I'm an opera singer first. I'm not a black person. However, that's not the world you're moving in. And so as so as activists, musical activists, how do we create space? for that conversation, because it can really, you know, seem like the old crabs in the bucket thing, as as our elders say. But at the same time, you know, there is an issue of, you know, gatekeeping and silencing of black ideas by way of black people. There, there's a there's a history of that. How how do we combat? Is is that just one of those internal uh, family conversations that we need to have or, you know, or or what do you think? That's another thing I'm really enjoying about the the culture today um that all of those old family secrets are all coming out like, <laughs> yeah like that like we're not yeah. keeping family secrets anymore because the the generation that those secrets are kept about we're the adults now and we've seen what happens when we keep that stuff we yeah. we allow that stuff to fester because that's essentially what we're doing or even or once that further we're enabling it so or even excusing it, therefore encouraging it. So, and we've recognized all that. So I think, you know, that's when I love the formation of the Black Opera Alliance. I think it was the best thing to happen for Black classical musicians. I'll I'll go as far as to say that because 
um, to finally get start a group that gets us all on the same page, at least a room where we can discuss the same book. And I think in those spaces, um, because we have that, and it comes from like African culture, because we have that uh, that respect for seniority to, to almost to our detriment. Mm-hmm. Um, it takes like numbers and and uh, like the only thing that like outweighs seniority is like is numbers and the amount of voices we have the 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 support. So I think it's getting that critical mass, the critical mass. And so I feel like as far as like those conversations go, um, when we all know that when we're on the same page, one, it will can serve as a essentially a wake up call for those who that may apply to, to like ask themselves that question. And then if they are lost or if they've gone too far, you know, down a road that they don't want to be, they can start keeping an eye on making it. And wonderfully, once again, they're in a position where they can actually, and not gatekeeping and i'm really trying to regulate my uh <laughs> my emotions this podcast is called triloquy words. go for it <laughs> man it's oh that that mm. so okay and it's not about uh, and I, and i'll say this it's not about naming names and calling yeah, people I'm not out try- as much as it's about recognizing that this is it's, an issue that is it, standing in our way as well it, yeah that that's re- it's really yeah an issue standing in our way because so we have the Black Opera Alliance and as you mentioned with some of the people that do make it to the higher points of their career um, they I and I think part of it might be a self preservation thing they feel like you know the black people are assembling and they know what's going to happen because they they know what black people are going through we're going to shake this house down uh, and probably burn it to the ground and rebuild it. But they're in the top floors. They've been living in that mm-hmm. house. And so there is that self-preservation as well. But I take issue when when some of those people actively work against sure. uh, the efforts of the the, fi- the the collective of like, like finally we've we've gathered and like we and this is like the one thing we know can make a difference. And you've taken all the time that you've made, especially for some of the, these artists, there have been, you know, they've held on to some of their, the, the activism, you know, they've, they've used their position to, to, to speak for some of the Black people who don't have the clout that they have and don't have the voice they have. But mm-hmm. it makes it that much more upsetting when those voices are the ones to silence this, uh, you know, this, this progress, this, this organization. Um, because it carries or, a lot or, more weight. Or are complicit in it. I think or we complicit, have to say that as well. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, because yeah, they're just they're just as as fallible. Um, because their voices are so much more effective and so much more loud. Hell, as black people, we when we or just as people, we've already like decided to respect you because you've done a certain certain things. When you now say say like, oh, you guys are overreacting by banding together and trying to use the little power you have yeah. to affect things, we start to internalize and think those messages. And so that that is going on. Now, one of the things, for instance, that uh, when I was saying earlier, like being in different cultures helped me see things like um, there are certain people that are still like um, that are participative in the the pushing against the Black Opera Alliance that are still kind of like discussed in a way that that feels um, 
insane to me because this is the way I think about it. If I were, let's say I were an evil white man that owns a opera company or runs the opera industry. And I saw, oh shit, the blacks are banding together and they're going to, they're going to try and be treated like humans in this industry. I need to stop them. What is the most effective way I can stop them? Let me find one of them. Do, do they have a leader or the closest thing to like someone they all respect? It's like, okay, they have these ones. Okay, which one has already is known for speaking for them the most? Is so that that one? Okay, cool. Have him now speak against it because that that like because he's like on the inside. Have him like tear it down from the inside. That would be the way I would go about tearing that apart. So that's the way I see these people, except. They haven't been asked. They're doing this on their own in their own free time for free, actively like doing this on a regular basis. And so those, the, so if like some like I were paying a few of these uh, senior opera singers to play these roles and we found out, we would treat them a certain way. We would handle them a certain way. It's like, hold on, you've been like working against the Black Opera Alliance because you're trying to help. They'll be treated that way. And then I think, no, 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 they weren't even paid. Yeah. They're just doing this. They're doing this for free. They're yeah. like, and and that's how I see them. So I'm like shaking, trying to stay, uh, <laughs> trying to stay calm right now. Um, yeah, those are that's that's who these people are to me. And so I don't I, I have very little patience, tolerance, respect. Respect doesn't even like it's it's weird to even like bring up respect in, in a conversation regarding these people anymore. It's like I'm I'm talking like. These people all need their asses whooped. Like, how do we even respect left the conversation months ago? Sure. Like, yeah. we're talking yeah. about why we shouldn't whip their asses right now. That's where I am. Um, trying, trying to rein it in. Not even, yeah, never mind. <laughs> I'm not well, threatening to whip anyone's ass or anything. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying <laughs> they should all be ashamed of them. And if their parents were around, their parents would whip their ass or should. I'll, I'll ask you to uh, offer some final thoughts on that. But uh, first, mm. how, how can people uh, reach out to you, uh, support your work and learn more about your work? Uh, well, you can find me on Instagram. That's like the place to go now. Like people yeah. used to have websites. Isn't that interesting? And, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, find me on Instagram, babatunde underscore hip hopera. Uh, and I'm on TikTok too, which is so much fun. Um, I've, I've fought TikTok for a while, but now that I'm on it, I'm like, this this might be. Might I'm still be. fighting it, but we'll see. <laughs> I, I was with I was OK. I'm not going to push. I'm not going to like go on about this, but try it for a day and just like all the things that are interesting to you. And you'll find or I found it's a very helpful tool. Like I okay. do before I do anything, I research it on TikTok too, because there's always someone who's figured out a better, cheaper, faster way to do it. It's, it's, I use right. it for research. Well, yeah. I'll, I, I suppose I'll take a look. <laughs> okay. Well, Try. so in, so in closing, you know, again, to the people on these top floors, if, as you've described, what is your charge to them? And not in as much as a way to, you know, wag our fingers, but in what way can they be of help? What is your charge to them as far as helping us push the needle and make a better arts opera, so-called classical music ecosystem for all of us? I understand why they're doing that or why they're acting the way they are. Everyone does. Um, they need to understand that because they're uncomfortable, this is not the time for them to say anything. Until they can work through whatever is encouraging them to work against 
uh, a lot of, and if you can't tell your actions, just look at how black, the black people, not the people who've always loved you, how the general black people are reacting. And that should tell you that you might be doing something a little off. If you're not sure, just stay quiet and out and just watch. And I promise that if what, what is good for black people is good for everyone, including the black people at the top. Like if, if you now, if you do get to a point where you see, where you can see that, hey, this, this, this should be this, like black people should be able to ask to be treated like regular people. Um, then find out how you, um, how you can be of support. And the, the a tip as far as that goes with every, uh, every revolution, every change, every change is brought by the youth. So not even like my generation, like the next up, find out what they are saying because they are not steeped in the bullshit of the opera. They haven't been in the industry forever. They aren't, they don't think everything is going on as normal. They know what's right and wrong. And, and honestly, and thank God for this. And I think that's, that's where the opera industry has shot them in the foot because opera is not hiring the black opera singers. We're not worried, especially the newer generation. They're not really worried about losing the work that they're not getting. So mm-hmm. trust them and encourage them, like uh, amplify their voices and not for your own personal like clout. Like, yeah, I, that's I'm sorry. <laughs> Still, as soon as like I start to think in certain directions, it's just heat. Um, but it's, that it's is an emotional charge. conversation. Yeah, that, that is like <laughs> it because I was so excited. Like I've never seen anything like this happen before. Like. We formed an organization where all of the black people in this organization, like, and I'm no, I know it's not every single one of us, but hundreds of us are to get on the same page asking for decent, and we got it organized, like everything. Like, I saw this as this is actually gonna happen. This is actually, and the worst possible thing that could happen to it is taking place. And and terrifyingly, we as the opera of uh, the Black Opera Alliance, or the, the a lot of the people involved in it are allowing it to continue because these guys, and the only reason is because these guys sing well. So we think because their ability to sing well, and like, and when I say sing well, they've been approved by the, the white people on top to of like, course, you know, that, right. that, like that's what we, that, you know, um, and they've gotten these positions in these rooms, you know, white people have approved of their ability to perform this art form that, you know, is their culture. And now, we treat them like they're worthy of that kind of reverence. And it needs to stop or else, or, or we need to stop. Yeah, It's like true. trying to, it's, it's like having cancer going to war. It's like, hang on, deal, deal with the illness because you're not, you're not going to make it. Like you, you yeah. have, you have, you have a gangrenous arm that is infecting the rest. You need a, either several, se- I don't know, I don't know. No. A, a colonized mind at the end it's, of the day. It's, <laughs> it really, really is. A colonized mind with power, essentially. And at the very least, just stop respecting them so they lose the power. Like, <laughs> I can't. To, <laughs> well, well to, to, to decolonizing the mind. I guess that's a great way to wrap that To up. the colonizing <laughs> the mind, yes. <laughs> Thank you, Baba Tu. No problem. Really care about your frontal. I don't see Living 
Beyonce being the seductress there as Carmen in the hip hopra Carmen from, I wish I could remember the year. It, it might have been uh, early, uh, it, probably not late 90s, but early 80s. I was sitting there in front of the TV. Mm-hmm. And of course, as a youngster, I understand what the opera Carmen is. And I know that it's a thing. I stand Beyonce. I have for over 20 years. So bringing those two things together created an experience that I never forgot. Now, we did say, uh, Babatunde and I, we talked about this and said that maybe it just hit a little too early. As we can hear, there are uh, MIDI instruments. Sure. And, you know, it, it could, you know, if it was produced today, it would be different. But even as is, I think if there was some sort of revival of it, it might inspire some folks it might inspire some opera houses what what do you think of what you've heard of uh, beyonce's hip hopera carmen it uses the themes and all that first i want to go all the way back what what was the track that he did the largo affectotum over the top humble okay from that worked a whole lot better than wop over the new world (laughs) symphony Oh, I liked that too, though. No, anyway. I'm saying his is better. <laughs> sure. Yeah. 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 I, there was it, there, it was just a little bit off, I think, to work with the New World Symphony. Well, but but the, the Largo Afaktotum with uh, the Kendrick Lamar worked. <laughs> it, yeah, it did. Yeah. I thought so. And he's got a great voice too. So yeah, yeah. very nice. As far as uh, that one, you know, if yeah, I, I say this, you're, you're going to get after me, though. If I say this, let me get my board ready. Yeah, get the board ready. <laughs> What you got to say? Wasn't wasn't her delivery a little breathy? What? Wait a minute. Are you sitting over here talking bad on Beyonce? Well, I mean, she. There was a. Did I hear it wrong? It seemed like she was taking breaths in front of every word for a second. We're gonna move on because I'm not gonna have you talking bad about me. No, I hear. I'm just asking. I hear you. I think we're getting into the seductress. I think we're talking about articulation. You know, Beyonce probably listened to the likely listened to the uh, original uh, Bizet. I believe that's the uh, dance bohem, and the flute plays bum bum. You know, so there is separation there. So that's Beyonce doing her homework. I'm just, I'm just asking that's, questions. Put some respect. Put some I, respect on it. I don't think I put any disrespect on it. <laughs> I don't. I just call me Scotty Appleseed. I'm just throwing out the seeds, asking questions. Um, what's your response to the idea of again? You know, before we get into the triloquy, uh, just highlighting some of the things I talked about with Baba Tunde. What do you think about um, you know needing? to leave yourself behind when you rise up in these professional spaces. Baba Tunde was obviously getting really emotional about it because it's a personal thing. And we've talked off mic about this issue, about, you know, certain folks of color who are elevated to certain positions because, you know, they're, they aren't going to rock the boat. They aren't going to do this. They aren't going to do that. I mean, do you consider that a, uh, do you, I'll ask it this way. Do you consider that a difficult conversation to have considering how difficult it is for me. I'm not going to come up here and, and shit on a black person because they did this. That's the whole, you know, as my grandma used to say, the crabs in the bucket mentality. But I think it's important to note that there is a certain amount of respectability that is required to maintain a position in, in these spaces. So ask me again, because I got lost. It's a, I, know, the, I, the... I tend to I ramble when it comes to this. Like when we talk about, you know, the difficulty that I have, the difficulty that Babatunde and so many others have in naming the issue of being you know, in that position, being in and, that position and be, and having to perform for that position, even if it goes against 
what you feel like is right or what most black people might say is right. Wow. Going, again, going wow. all the way back to the downbeat. Yeah. When we were talking about the beginning of this opus, that's a difficult for, thing for us to deal with. As an ally, as a, a, a aspiring accomplice, you know, how, how, how do you approach that? Is there a way from your perspective to approach it? Uh, just if if you know the person that we're talking about, like let's say it's you and me, sure. All I can do is give you all the support I can so that you can be successful in when when it happens. Mm -hmm. So if you know somebody that's in one of those positions and you know they're and they're feeling the strain and and the pressure, take them for a drink, make them a make them lunch, you know, do do something to help them keep the fight going. What what about the necessity again of and we talked about this over dinner today the necessity of having to color within the lines i mean mm -hmm. i feel like coloring within the lines is not changing anything coloring within the lines is maintaining everything you know right so when you go out there and color outside of the lines and you take whatever beating you do from social media or sure. or friends or or whatever it is i just want you to know that you can count on me for support that i will say things that will try to keep you going well when it comes to you know coloring outside of the lines i don't even see the lines i love the expression on your face right the now. lines should not exist <laughs> anyway you got another one <laughs> let's get it. you want a fresh one? <laughs> oh, and quickly before we get into the triloquy um one thing that I wanted to ask you about, Babatunde was talking about how TikTok is a tool for him now, and he pushed against it forever, and mm -hmm. he uses it you know, for reference and all sorts of things. I'm still pushing against. He challenged me to just try it for a day, and if I still don't want it, just delete it. Are you willing? Do you want to take the one-day challenge with me and see if you keep it on your phone? I'll take the challenge with you, but I'm not going to keep it. Oh, you know from a fact you're not going to. I do. What if, what if Tom Waits is on there giving it up on TikTok? I would be <laughs> floored if that happened. I'm sure there are plenty no, of guitarists I'm, on there whose TikToks you would love. You I'm know? sure. I bet, I bet there are some things, but um, I, I spend enough time looking into that phone I, uh, I really, I really need to be paying more attention to my dog and my and my projects and keeping my own stuff in line. If I need help with something, I'll just go to YouTube because I know that I can get the help and be done. Whereas if I'm on TikTok, what I'm gonna I'm gonna find out what I need and go. Oh, here's a guy making grilled cheese with mayonnaise. <laughs> Why you, is he doing that? But see, you're on YouTube looking at those ads. Anyway, we we, we don't have. We I don't, pay we don't for have it time. now. Oh, oh, do you? Oh, very. Good. You know, I pay for it now. I, I didn't know that. That's that's news to me. <laughs> Ad free experience. Right. Just like just like Triloquy. Let's get into the final movement. Let's get into the Triloquy. Since we were talking about Carmen, you know, Shoot. I went and found a I found a trill in Carmen. Okay, listen. I, I say this every week, but for real, I'm gonna try to keep it quick because we've been talking for a while. One of my big struggles last week that I wanted to address on the podcast today is how we approach the idea of uh, philanthropic giving, uh, uh, getting you know grants and, and that sort of thing. I was supposed to be on a call, and I'll be as anonymous as I can be. One of the institutions, one of the uh, organizations, grassroots organizations that contracts me for work, I had a call that I was supposed to do with them with a granting organization. 
um, based on the rules of the grant and, and all those stuff, you know, this organization meets all of the requirements. There's no question that, you know, we are deserving that or that organization. Again, I'm not talking about me personally. Mm-hmm. I'm not even talking about Triloquy. You know, this organization that I'm uh, aligned with, uh, you know, they, they deserve that money. And it's, it's sort of obvious by, you know, all of the material that's there, all the work that we've done. This organization, and, and I'm, I'm not saying it's just automatically bad, but they wanted to have that meeting. Uh, to talk and to hear what we have to say and uh, affirm, you know, how much we would be appreciative for this grant and X, Y, and Z. And I just could not bring myself to go to the meeting. I was having a rough week anyway. I felt like all the material is there, um, you know, out in the open on the website and, and X, Y, and Z. Why do we have to come kiss your ring? Why do we have to come perform for you? And I understand that that really isn't the way it works. You know, folks just giving away money, except for um, uh, Bill Gates' ex-wife now, right? Did you read about that? She's given away... She gave she away was, like $2 billion, didn't yeah, she? Yeah, like $2.8 billion. Finks got some. Play on Philly got some. Shout out to Stanford. Hey, like, Mrs. X Bezos. Yeah, Triloquy. Um, Triloquy.org. Oh, is, it was Jeff Bezos' ex-wife, yeah. What did I say? <laughs> no, no, I, I said it was uh, Bill oh. Gates. Jeff Bezos' ex-wife. In, anyway, so my, my, what my point is, Scott, is that you have all of these... Uh, organizations out here, all of, all of these granting organizations, the foundations who won't just open up the the treasure chest and and give out the money. You have to do something for them. There's still this transactional thing. Yeah. There's still this power yeah. dynamic of have and have not, want and giver. And I I just couldn't do it that day. Um, Dives and Lazarus. Do Do you think? Yeah, yeah, great point. Do you think uh, this is a battle? <laughs> worth fighting do you think we we talk about equity in classical music classical music so-called classical music is forever aligned with philanthropic giving and philanthropy because that's just the way the art form is is framed here you know it's not a state-funded thing it's something that people make tax-deductible donations to right Mm -hmm. so is this a battle even worth fighting do i just need to accept that kissing the ring is a part of the is a part of the a part of the game what if it was Joe Budden? If if Joe Budden was asking me to kiss his ring, if 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 he was going to give if if he was going to give you some money, but he said, "I want to talk to you first. That's a good point. I feel like that conversation would be a little different than the conversation. Oh, that without question, I was going to have. I was going to have to have with this organization, you know. But that is a good point. I, I would, but I would, I would, I would take that phone call for free. Like I would love to talk to, to Joe Budden or whoever, you know, or like the Beyonce Foundation or it, it the just, Parkwood Foundation. Right, but it just know? goes back, like you're saying, it just goes back to the power dam- dynamic idea. Right. Right. Um, I, I don't, I don't know. What do you think that you have enough in you to hold on to where uh, the the current power structures, the the people that are in power have retired and or found another gig and there's somebody who's more sympathetic or somebody who understands these things more in that position can you hold on i i well, i know that i'm going to yeah, get lit question. up i know no, that no, i'm, no, I'm no. going to get lit up for saying you know we need more time we need more time i'm not i'm you know, here here i'm here i'm batting my <laughs> mic no i'm not I'm, I'm not saying that i'm saying that yeah i'm saying for the people who want can you wait them out Okay, so A, we've been waiting them out for four hundred years. I understand this. Okay, but 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 B, okay. What were we talking about in the downbeat? 
can a person who wants to just open up the chest get to one of those positions, the president of one of these foundations? Is that possible? I'm doubtful of that. And what gets me into my feelings about the whole thing is that as as uh, as fiery as I am about equity in the concert hall, equity in the uh, opera house, breaking down that phrase classical music, I can believe in that. That is something that I can see. Breaking down the power structures of these financial institutions seems really out of reach. And in my heart of hearts, I can't say that I can see the liberation of those spaces, but I know that it's a conversation that's happening. There's so many billions of dollars that are sitting in these uh, endowments through through all of these organizations. We could have so much if we broke just broke away the rules from you know how the money should be given or or X Y Z. Would it make a difference if you knew that the work that you're doing right now might inspire? the next group of people who will be the change. Oh, sure. And so I, like like yeah. the David Norvels or, yeah. you know, the um, the younger set now. Yeah, and I know for a fact that by the time, you know, I'm an older man, <laughs> that there will be more You're talking people. talking about me now. <laughs> there will be more people who are, are really pushing back on that idea in a, uh, in a, in a more out front way. I feel like filling out grant uh, proposals and, and, and all of that is sort of something that most people understand, but that is the livelihoods of many of these right, artists. You know, right. I've, I've been on these uh, panels to choose who uh, get some of these grants. I'm proud to say that um, the, the last one that I was on, everyone who applied got something. You know, it wasn't the ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000. Maybe it was just five hundred. Or, or a thousand or whatever. But I mean, just giving them something is so important. And I feel like, again, we, we, we have uh, we've turned the dragon sitting on top of this pile of gold into the good guy. And I think we need to reframe that conversation. Oh, you don't and, have to with me. And critique more of these, uh, again, financial institutions, uh, granting or- organizations, foundations, whatever, and challenging them to just open up open up the treasure chest. We were talking about Juneteenth earlier. Uh, that restaurant I was talking about just cooked up all sorts of food in their restaurant and brought it out. You know, And I know that that's something that you can't do every day, but you're not going to tell me that an organization with a multi-million, some of them close to a billion dollar endowment, can't open up those doors a little bit. There was a, and I don't know if you know this, there was a, uh, a granting organization that wanted to advertise on this show, and they give away $2 million a year. And the price that everybody pays, okay, to advertise, to underwrite Triloquy was too much for them. And they turned down the offer. So they have all of this money that they are, you know, having hid behind the gates and they're going to pass out whenever they want. But you can't pay a, a fair price to independent content creators for their work. That's that's what I'm saying. We're, we're, we're setting up gates and making people perform for this money that... They, that, that we shouldn't have to be doing that. And if we're talking about the real good-hearted, philanthropic people that we paint these organizations to be, they should just be opening up the treasure chest and handing out the money. Uh, Mrs. X. Bezos, I need to put some respect on her name. I think her first name is Mackenzie, if I'm remembering correctly. I'll, let, me, let me look it up real quick as I'm, vibe, as I'm uh, vamping here. If, sh- if she can give away all of that money and just do what... She does, and and really uh, pay it. Yeah, Mackenzie Bezos, uh, Mackenzie Scott. Now, if she can do that, 
And she and the the articles I was reading said she can't even give the money away quick enough because she has so much money. The interest is always growing. It's X, y, and Z. So yeah. if if she can forego some of these traditional rules around philanthropic giving, I think every single one of these foundations needs to follow suit. And I think if we can really open up that conversation, we can um, we can make some money here on Triloquy. No, we can, we can, cre- we, can <laughs> create a, we can create an arts ecosystem that's that that has more juice in it. There you go. You know, you know. Agreed. Um, when we when we blow this up, you know, step away from the arts, step away from the philanthropic giving. There was this guy on Twitter uh, last night that was getting flamed. This black man saying that, oh, I hate that I had to, uh, you know, Evict offer eviction, eviction papers to my tenant. Uh, it's, it's crazy how capitalism turns us into its henchmen. This is the thing. This is the problem. I'm going to say this and we're going to be done. Capitalism is about volunteering something. We are, we are all victims of it. We are all oppressed by it. If you are trying to flip that and turn someone else's paycheck into your passive income, that's 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 not capitalism turning you to a henchman. That's you, you know, participating in it actively. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, just just bringing that up as one example in all things we do. Um, I, I understand that there's value on certain things. I'm not saying if you're a piano teacher out here to do the lessons for free, you know, and, and you're starving because there's value behind your training and there's value behind what you're training those students to do. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that if you're in a position to give, give. And it's, and it's, and it's that simple. These philanthropic organizations can give. I uh, m- maybe this is sort of a, a I don't know a random thing for me to be rambling about, but it, it definitely uh, contributed heavily to my mood last week and, and my hopelessness. I'm feeling better today. No, I'm glad you're feeling better. I just hope these uh, organizations will open up the the piggy banks a little bit and recognize the the Loosen great work the purse that so strings. much. Yeah, the great work so many folks are doing. All right, thank you everyone for listening. If you are one of these millionaires, go to trilogy.org and. Uh, and press that donate Hit button. Hit that cash app. <laughs> Thank you, everyone, so much. See you next week.